one more thing before we move on to wherever you guys are going to move on to, which is the ending. Hey guys, this is Alon. And this is David. And welcome to another episode of I Finally Watched. And today I finally watched Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Uh, and today we have a special guest, my friend Joey, who is a big fan of this movie, I believe, and its director. Uh, so Joey, I guess just talk a little bit about, um, you know, your first time watching this uh, and, you know, what Dr. Strangelove, I guess, means to you. Uh, yeah, thank you for that introduction. It's a pleasure to, to join the, the guys. Dr. Strangelove is a movie that I love, and I will tell you why. Uh, I found it on uh, a, a chance. I was perusing one of well, the only go-to uh, website that I use for reviews for films that I trust anyway, it's called Metacritic. And I was just perusing and I happened to make it give me the list of the greatest films of all time. And Dr. Strangelove was one of the first ones that I really made it uh, a homework assignment of mine to make sure I understood why something that's considered a comedy was given a, I believe a 97 overall based on something like over 50 critic reviews. So I had to see it. And, it, and it, as we will discuss, uh, I was right or wrong about recommending this to you. I, you know, this is a really interesting movie. And as Joey said, I think as far as comedies and satires go, it, it's the most famous or at least the most critically acclaimed. Um, I read somewhere where it's considered like the best black comedy ever made um which i i see why and obviously stanley kubrick is a great director um and he's he did one of my favorite movies which is 2001 space odyssey i you know freaking love that film um the first time i saw dr strange love was probably maybe seven eight years ago and i watched it in college with a bunch of like you know hoity-toity film majors and they were like oh this is so great I really love this and I'm just like just bored out of my complete mind and watching it again I was again bored out of my mind and I I think this is this is a type of movie that you have to be really in the right headspace for and you have to kind of know what you're expecting. Because when I watched it for a second time, like back to back, um, I, I did see the appeal. I started to actually really like it. I started to get the joke. I did start to understand it better because I thought the first time the beginning is very kind of hard to follow. Um, and I'll just say like my favorite part of this whole movie is the last 30 minutes I could I, I, right now, I couldn't name probably maybe Airplane a better satirical comedy in the last 30 minutes of Doctor Strange. I thought it was just very enjoyable and very funny. Yeah, when I watched it the other night, I agree with you that the first watch, it's really hard to follow like what this is about. Like going into it, you know, the images you have from this is Dr. Strangelove, Peter Sellers, you know, dressed up in that costume. And then the cowboy riding the bomb. Which you mean, you mean Peter Sellers dressed up in three costumes? 
Well, I only knew two. He was the president, he's Dr. Strangelove, and he's Mandrake. He was the president? Oh, you didn't know he was the president? <laughs> no, I gotta look. No, I did not know. That's crazy. That so it's funny is when I was watching it, I was like, I'm pretty sure he's Mandrake. And it was only because of the hair that I noticed it. But the president part of it never entered my mind. And I was I had like some notes that I put down about part of my like some of my favorite parts of this movie were the president and Dimitri, the premier of Russia, those conversations, and just the the way he was like almost like a, a pleading boyfriend, like, please don't be mad at me that we're bombing your country. Um, so I, I want, I want Joey's input on this, but one of the, like my favorite things that I found out about this movie is not only that Peter Sellers played the president, Dr. Strangelove and Mandrake, but Kubrick also wanted him to play General Turgidson. Uh You already won me over though, with the fact that you noticed that. I didn't think it would happen this quick that you picked up on something that David missed. But anyway, continue. It happens. Well, no, so Kubrick wanted, uh, Kubrick wanted him to play Turgidson and uh, Peter Sellers is like, no, cause that role is too like physically demanding. I don't, I don't want to play it. But Kubrick's whole idea with putting Peter Sellers in all these roles for this one film was that no matter where you turn, the world's fate was always resting in Peter Sellers' hands. And that was Kubrick's like whole idea through the film. Did you notice that your first watch or did you have to look that up like, like I did? I, not only did I not notice it, but you uh, educated me. One of the things I really loved too was George C. Scott as Turgidson. Uh, I think like he, the, for my mind, he's probably my favorite character in the movie. I mean, when you add up all the Peter Sellers characters, like. It's a little bit of an unfair advantage, um, but he's he's great in that role. It's hard to get the context of what this movie is because it's a satire. They're not playing the roles the way a normal movie about the end of the world by a, like a nuclear holocaust would go. You know what I mean? Like they're they're playing it very straight, very reserved, very conservative in the dialogue, especially with. Uh, general ripper and uh mandrake like those two are not acting as if you know the russians have bombed dc and we're about to retaliate so i think this is a movie and we say this so much and i it's something i've really like developed now but you have to watch this more than once to really like fully understand it and to just you gain so much more from it stanley kubrick has an immaculate uh um filmography and i think dr strange love is is definitely the best of it and you know what i noticed too in the beginning of it is the one the credits because you have two warnings one the upfront one that almost seems like a joke that the navy that the air force is like this would never happen and these aren't real people but then in the credits there's another one saying the exact same thing like just for sure like this is a satire um which it's obviously they are trying to, it's a pointed satire that's trying to, it's trying to make a point. Um, but I love the, the classical score of the opening credits because mm -hmm. it's, it almost felt like a, like a 1960s Disney film. <laughs> like it could have been Bambi, like the song that they could have used for Bambi. 
Well, especially um, like especially in the credits, like the font that they used right. for the names showing up, I thought was really like uh, ethereal, like really light on like, and and in contrast to the, the denseness um, and dark qualities of this movie. I, I agree with you, David. It, it's like, it's a nice um, contrast to each other. Well, and then the whole movie is shot almost like it's a, it's black and white, obviously, but then it's shot like a documentary. Just like you have like a day in the life crew who happens to have cameras like in the war room or and on this bomber for something that's obviously so serious and so powerful and to just treat it as if it's not almost except when you actually get into the war room and like the full scope of what's happening, you know, becomes apparent. Well, I, I actually think that the real documentary kind of feel I got was in the bomber. But for me, whenever they were doing the, we were in the scene with, in the plane, that was like incredibly, like there were some hilarious jokes in there, you know, no doubt. Um, like one of my favorite ones was it's like, you know, open the command and they're just like flipping switches and there's like every switch says second open and they're just flipping it and flipping. It's like nine minutes of flipping switches. Um, but it was probably my least favorite scene. Like I thought the war room was way more interesting, way more was going on. And then any scene with Mandrake, I thought was just phenomenally funny. Uh, yeah, I think, and I guess Joey will get your input on this, but I would agree that it's almost two different movies. The part, uh, the part with Mandrake, the part in the war room is very compelling. And then the part in the bomber, I mean, towards the end when it's like been hit and might be going down, things get kind of exciting in there. But that part is, yeah, that's the documentary feel I was getting. And specifically too, when they get the orders for the, uh, the plan R and they're like going through like, Oh, we'll check it again. Oh, that can't be right. Check it again. Okay. I guess that is, I guess this is what we're doing. And then they like go through the contents of their survival kit with like seven packs of gum and like condoms and morphine. But it is. Wait, 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 wait. You did not mention the tiny little book of the Holy Bible and the Russian uh, catchphrases. All in one. All in one. But it is, it is two different movies, you know, and I think it, you need all of it, but I, I agree with you that the more enjoyable parts are not in the bomber. So if you guys know a little bit of history, um, there was a famous serial killer that terrorized the streets of the United Kingdom in the late 1800s by the name of Jack the Ripper. Uh, and it comes as no surprise that Arguably, one of the biggest doofuses in all of this is General Jack D. Ripper, um, which is, I don't know what you think. I'd love to hear your uh, input on this, uh, Alon and David, but is that a possible social commentary on what Britain might have thought of America at, during wartime? Sure. Um, I, so just to be specific, you're asking if you thought Stanley Kubrick thought that America was a serial killer slash rapist of the world, right? I, you know what? I, maybe that, that's highly possible. And I think a lot of people probably back then and now have that feeling towards um, the United States. But the, um, the whole, I think, 
metaphor of this movie is kind of like a balance between morality, what's right, what's wrong, and how people deal with it. I think a big question in the movie was, if you take out Russia, where they wanted to hit all the bombs, they would have um, incapacitated 90% of Russian military or something like that. And the question was, you kill this many Russians, you save, you know, only 20 million Americans would die instead of 150. So you would be saving essentially 130 million Americans. And is that worth more than all these Russians? Or, you know, so the line, yeah, it's a comedy and yeah, it's haha funny, but I think this movie does pose a lot of uh, questions on, on morality and what's right and what's wrong. Well, yeah, and I think the Jack D. Ripper, which I just got the Ripper part. I almost, I didn't, I never put together his full name. So once again, I wasn't paying attention. But with the names, I think Kubrick's doing a lot as far as you have Lionel Mandrake, who is like the most prim and proper British person you could meet. And that's such a prim and proper British name. Uh, Buck Turgidson, which almost sounds like turd. Uh, Colonel Batguano, who is the one that, you know, holds a gun to Mandrake and then the guy Slim Pickens who's larger than life playing uh, Major King Kong so like I, I mean the names were just they're just kind of lending to the farcical nature of of the movie and I do think like overall obviously the point of this movie is making fun of uh, the U.S. and Russia to an extent and their actions during the Cold War um, think that's kind of I think that's the that's laid out pretty easily for us to follow <laughs> if I was able to pick it out then I don't think it was too difficult um and so I think just naming him Jack the Ripper he is like the the manifestation of all that's wrong with the U.S. as far as the way we he's willing to you know kill many many Russians in the hopes of just ridding the world of communism, which he thinks is, thinks is a plague on the world. And in doing his, his solution to that is to just murder many, many people. And in the process also kill 20 million Americans, which uh, General Buck says is an acceptable level of casualties, 20 million Americans. Right. And I definitely want, I want Joey's input on this, but I, I do want to add, you know, like Joey was saying, Britain was terrified of Jack the Ripper um, to a point where, you know, fear and paranoia plagued the streets to the, you know, they, they were arresting people just on suspicion, um, yet never caught the guy. And what was interesting about Ripper's fear of communism here was that it was, like David said, basically off of paranoia. And like, you know, if we can't, what's the point of getting one of them? We have to get all of them. And this always takes me by surprise. It took me by surprise six years ago when I first saw this movie and it took me by surprise again, is he goes into the bathroom, shuts the bathroom door, and then in the middle of Mandrake's monologue, you hear a gunshot. And I was like, well, shit, he just killed himself. I think the lead up to that though, it becomes obvious that's what he's going to do because he, he asks Mandrake about 
um, you know, have you ever been a prisoner of war? And then asks him about the torture. And then General Ripper's like, well, I believe in an afterlife. And obviously I know I'll have to answer for, for what I've done. Um, but I think Sellers is so great in that scene, just continually talking along, like as he has this machine gun with the, with the, the rope of bullets, like with it, um, just like, oh yes, yes. And you'll just give me the code. Yeah, go in there, go to the bathroom real quick and everything, you know, and then the gunshot. Um, I, I think the interplay of like, this is a serious subject, but with just with all the satire and the jokes, um, you know, that's what sets this above. It's, it's, there aren't any movies that I think I could compare this to, because obviously there's dark comedies, obviously there's satires, but just one done so straight, but in, on such a serious subject matter, but with such slapstick elements is like shooting the Coke machine to get coins out and then Coca-Cola spraying, you know, this general in the face or whoever. Um, you know, that's what I think sets this apart, you know, and makes it, you know, live on. Did anyone else think that the phone conversation uh, between the secretary of Turgeson, when I first watched this, I thought they were in a hotel room and she had some sort of makeshift tanning bed set up, but I guess that's meant to be like a house of Turgeson and the, and the secretary just frequents there in a two piece occasionally. But I, I wanted to know what you guys thought of that. I mean, that that to me is one of the that's a that's a capsule that you could take. And if you get that absurdity and that makes you laugh, this whole film is just going to be one big bar of gold. Well, and I think yeah. I mean, obviously, I th I think the point trying to be made there is that the people with their with their finger on the button, the people that are. Um, answering directly to the president and giving the president advice on war are people that are sleeping with their secretary, have a tanning bed in their office or have their secretary coming over at 3 a.m. Um, and who are too busy to answer like very important phone calls from generals who, you know, need their, need their help. My favorite part of that is when Turgidson finally gets on the phone and then like, well, here's what you do and like slaps his belly a few times before giving like, really necessary advice on how to prevent uh, an apocalypse uh, uh -huh. like that th that part like really got to me um, but yeah I mean that whole that whole scene is just setting up these are the buffoons that are in charge of keeping you safe for you know I took that scene a little differently for like an, an immediate setup and payoff uh, as a joke of a joke um, I felt like that scene was setting up later on when, when he was, Turgidson was in the war room and, you know, they just finished this very like serious discussion with the president and all of his generals are like talking amongst themselves. And then Turgidson gets a phone call in the war room, mind you. And he's like, you know, he's like, oh, hey, baby. Yeah, you, you can't, you can't call me right now. I'm, I'm with the president. Wow. I, no, it's not, this is not physical. You know, that, like that whole like really intimate conversation. And I was like, I'm waiting for it to cut back to like everyone at that table, just staring at him as he hangs up. But they don't give you that, that payoff. It's more of the payoff and something as absurd as something so personal happening in such a, like a dire time. And then he ends the conversation in, oh, uh, 
don't forget to say your prayers and then hangs up. I just was like, that's hilarious. Right. Well, from, it's, it's funny because I keep going back to the fact that when I hear you guys comment on what we all think of this movie and what it really was trying to say, there's a lot of things that I come back to and I'm like, wow, was that really going on? Was that re really a social issue as far back as 1964? Um, just a couple more um, facts about the movie that I, that I love besides the endless quotes, which I'm going to get into in a second. Um, one of the immediate boxes that I always have to have checked before I give something the classic is that it says a phrase that you, when you hear it for the first time, you think, oh, I've heard that a billion times, but you, you don't realize that was the first time it was said. And I'm pretty sure that an example of that is the following quote, which I believe is said by the, the cowboy. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong by this, but I believe it's the pilot, but I believe it's him when he's talking to his uh, fellow co-flyers. I don't even know what you would call them, but he, he says shoot first and then ask a couple questions. But that's truly just presented as is. So check on that box. That's the first time that that was said and meant to be serious, but it was so absurd that we all just were sitting. I, in my opinion, I, I, was, I was cracking up when I saw it. Um, well, so I don't actually even remember that specific line. And it's probably because that's such a, that's just in the lexicon now, shoot you know, people who don't even have guns shoot first, ask questions later, almost the same as like, you know, ask for forgiveness instead of permission. When this was first um, released, and it makes the dialogue um, timeless in a way. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I mean, as far as quality of the picture goes, I, I feel like obviously it's black and white. And, and I know a lot of people maybe find that not as enjoyable. I don't have a problem with, with black and white films, but as far as picture quality goes, Kubrick shoots in these very large format, beautiful film. You know, obviously it's film, it's 1960. I, I think not only the quality of picture, but, and the relevance of, of the topic of the film is still relevant even till today. But honestly, if this movie came out like right now with a 2020 uh, release date, I'd be like, yeah, okay. I, I totally, I totally buy it. No, yeah. The, okay. the, fil the filming of it looks very timeless to me um, and the quality of it. Yeah. Like, I don't know if we saw like a remaster version or not, but um, I agree with you that it looks like it could have come out whenever this film is insulated from criticism mostly because every time you attempt to knock it down, like say by saying the graphics are appropriate for 1964, meaning they're terrible, it just makes the movie funnier. But the, thing, silly. the thing is though, is that there wasn't any any like in the movie. Okay. never mind. There was the only time I can think of in the movie where you're like, Oh, this is an old film is when they're showing you the exterior of the bomber flying and it's obviously like a toy plane in like a like a miniature background yes. right mm -hmm. it's genius and it's a it's a bunch of grown-ups playing war 
Yeah, and it's and it's great. Don't get me wrong, it's great, but you would never see something like that in, a, in this day and age, right? And and obviously they couldn't, you know, CGI a bomber or, or get the shot, you know, with the camera. But even at the very end of the movie, when when it's just picture after picture after video after video of all these bombs exploding. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I didn't fact check myself, but those are real bombs, right? Like those are real explosions going off. Yeah, I mean, those uh, are, I think those are almost basically like Getty images. Like they're just taken from actual explosions that either the military has put out a video of or you know, something like that. Russia's leader is Premier Kissoff. Dimitri. I, I love the way the president refers to him as Dimitri. And obviously the Kissoff is, uh, you know, a play on a, a, a joking on the name, just like the others we've talked about. But yeah, the way uh, the way President Merkin Muffley, which is also just like a it's like a fugly name to describe a a balding president who's very meek when he talks to you know and kind of looks in like other FDR. countries. But yeah, I, like I love the name and I just love the way he refers to. But Dimitri, I swear we're doing our best. You know, we're behind <laughs> you 100%, Dimitri. Um, my favorite thing he says to him is when he's talking about uh, Dimitri is upset that um, they're, you know, that they're, uh, that they've missed the one bomber. The president's like, I'm sorry they're jamming a radar and fly me, flying so low. They're trained to do it. It's initiative, Dimitri. He's <laughs> like, and I'm apologizing because they're so good. <laughs> Every scene in that war room is exemplary. Every, all the dialogue. This is some of the best dialogue ever written. Gentlemen, there's no fighting in here. This is a war room. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, wanted to on. bring that up. Yeah, that He's, just, I've, he's I've, just playing with house money. He's making fun of everybody else. He's saying, I make better films than you. <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, my, uh, like I mentioned before, my favorite part uh, of this whole movie is the last 30 minutes. I think it's joke oh, after yeah. joke after joke. And, and it's really just because Kubrick did such a good job of building up all these characters and building up all these situations. And it's like, you know, everything that, that's been set up to this point fall in the last 30 minutes. Um, and, and I think, okay, there's two parts that I absolutely love. And, and one of them is in the war room, because like Joey said, I do think incredible things happen in there. And it is one of the most interesting parts of the movie whenever we are there with those characters. But a, a favorite of mine is when Mandrake has to make the call to the president and he's like 20 cents short to basically <laughs> saving, saving the world. <laughs> and... And he's 20 cents short, and then he's like, okay, maybe uh, operator, can we just put this call on collect? And then they don't accept, they don't accept his collect call. And then he shoots, he's like, why don't you go over there and shoot the Coke machine? And the, and the general guy is like, sir, if this, if this doesn't go well, you'll have the Coca-Cola company to answer too. <laughs> no. I also like that he calls him a prevert. And then he's like, and then when he goes in the uh, phone booth, he opens the door back up. He's like, I want to make sure you're not doing any perversion, preversions in there. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, the, the whole scene is great. I love like Mandrake just explaining to him. He's like, well, I was supposed to come in here and get Colonel Ripper. He's like, well, there you see, like you idiot. Like we're supposed to get Ripper and he's dead and I'm his second in command. 
doesn't it make sense that I'm supposed to talk to the president? (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, of course, you know, he bends down to collect the coins and the Coke hits his face like we discussed. But I think it's just like, it's, it's the cherry on top, right? It's icing on the cake. It's like all these jokes leading up to that are great but then you hit it with this like really basic slapstick comedy which i usually don't like slapstick because i think it's like a really cheap way to get laughs but followed up with all this clever dialogue and all these clever jokes and then you hit me with a slapstick moment i'm like god damn that's good you know Mm -hmm. yeah and it gave a whole new meaning to me um having a coke and a smile I really wanted to bring up uh, Turgidson's, like, love of the big board when they're going to bring in the Russian ambassador. And he's like, but, sir, he'll see the big board. Like, what are you doing here? And he's like, and the president's like, well, that's, you know, the idea. And then later on, uh, the president's like, oh, uh, Dimitri's saying that one of the guys has gotten through. And he's like, I don't, but, but look at the big board. That's impossible. <laughs> like, the big board's not <laughs> dots. Clearly yeah. no one's gotten through. Oh, yeah. And then he, he like – fisticuffs with the with the russian ambassador and he's like what's going on here and he's like but but sir he he's taking pictures of the big board yeah what was up with ripper and his obsession with fluids you know i i kept i kept writing that down and then i realized um later on because they bring it up again but he talks about um he talks about fluoridation as being a communist plot which is basically he's just saying that the communists are putting fluoride in our water and that's a communist plot to take over America. Um, and that's one of those things too, where you, you watch this movie and it's only upon watching it again that you get all the fluid references again. And then he talks about the fluoride. You're like, Oh, right. Yeah. This is just, once again, this general Ripper is just a one track mind defeat the communists and everything is a communist plot. Right. Alon, did you see when they were, uh, it happened a couple different times, um, just a scene of a giant billboard being pelted with bullets that says, peace is our profession. Yes, I did see that, and I, and I do see the irony in that. Good. That's about all it's worth. <laughs> What's ironic about that? I don't get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, it's pretty high intellect and would go over your head, David. Um, other than that, though, uh, do you guys want to talk about the t- the title character? I I do, but to start it out, I think the scene I want to talk about is his first one when we're introduced to him, because you see him around the table and he's sort of nondescript. They don't really focus on him, but I love when uh, the Russian ambassador starts talking about the Doomsday device. And that's when they bring Dr. Strangelove in and they kind of explain like, you know, they don't come out and say it, but obviously you figure out this is a former, former Nazi who has come over here and we've kind of hired because he knows stuff that will help us in our efforts. And so we're, we're just going to look past, you know, the atrocities. Um, but I love, I love the Russian ambassador explaining that they have a doomsday device that no one knows about. And then, uh, you know, Dr. Strangelover getting called, Strangelove getting called over because he's the director of weapons research and development. Um, and just, ex- you know, the president like, oh, would, you know, would this make sense? Would this be something we would do? And the Russian ambassador's like, I read it in New York Times. 
and Dr. Strangelove explaining like, well, this is why a doomsday, this is why you would want it. This is why you would want it to be irrevocable and automated. And this is how easy it would be. And then my favorite part is just in the end, but it only really works if the world knows about it. Why didn't you tell us about it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alon, since it was your idea, you got you to gotta take it from here. What's up with uh, Dr. Strangelove? Oh, man. I mean, okay. So <laughs> that whole ending scene with him, his, his spastic arm wanting to heil Hitler like every two seconds. And I think one of my favorite moments is when he calls multiple times the president of the United States, Mein Fuhrer. And at first you think, oh, it's, it's because he's a Nazi and he's so used to calling like, you know, Hitler that, and he's just... But I looked at it at a, at a more of like a, a metaphor of thinking that if you look at the United States, we're kind of like the definition of like the, the correct thing to do, right? America. <laughs> exactly. We, we are like, you know, all other countries have done atrocities except us. We're, we've never done anything bad our entire lives, right? Of course not. Um, the, the entire existence of, of the United States. And w- what was interesting to me is him calling the president Mein Fuhrer was like, yeah, it could have just been like a, like a, a tick, but I took it as more of like taking off the rose colored glasses and being like, you know, sacrificing 20 million Americans. Yeah, it's just like basically killing them yourself. Like, I mean, and then Hitler killing, you know, all the people that he he's responsible for killing quite a few and i think the movie was saying america shouldn't get away with also making the hard choices also being responsible for a lot of people's deaths but also always being looked into this like as this bright light of the world you know yeah so alon let me just ask you uh if russia was written as the primary uh, enemy of the United States in this film. What, in your opinion, do you think was the significance of Stanley Kubrick writing in such deep references to Hitler, the Third Reich, Nazism, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think like the focus antagonist of the film. I mean, okay, the antagonist of the film itself, as at like a linear structure, right, would be Ripper. He's always fucking stuff up, right? Um, Correct. But I think at a overly worldview of the plot, it would be the Russians. And even with Dr. Strangelove being a Nazi, I still wouldn't say the German Nazi, you know, uh, is the, is, I think he, Kubrick really used Dr. Strangelove as a metaphor being like, I think just um, a more simple explanation to me is, I mean, we actually, you know, allowed former Nazis to come and make a life in our countries and sometimes use them um, if it benefited us. I think that's just the commentary of like, we're using these obviously very evil people for our gains. And so, uh, you know, are we better than anyone else? I thought all the, uh, all the Mein Fuhrer, Heil Hitler stuff was like, it's a bit over the top. It's kind of the most over the top satirical stuff in the movie for sure. Um, and so it, it, you know, it's funny. 
I, I think it's like something that the more you see it, the less funny it is. Um, upon second watch, I was just like, ah, it's a bit much. Not not because I was like offended, uh, but just because it's like you know, it's it's like almost too out there. Like it's. But <laughs> my favorite part of of that is when uh, the president is asking Doctor Strangelove, you know, what would be the fallout, and he has this like little spinning disc of like <laughs> nuclear fallout and how big the bomb <laughs> is and how many pocket years reference. Like, Oh man, that that part was so great. And like how he has Let to pull from another. Let me check my nuclear area. bomb pocket reference. Exactly. <laughs> That's a good one, man. All right, oh, Joey. Man. What was what was your favorite like Doctor Strange love part? That this character is someone who is a sort of a a think tank behind it all, but I don't really know who this character is. So I'm at the mercy of their gravitas and whatever they might say or do to walk away and determine how important this character was. And obviously I walked away knowing that this is, there's a reason why this is the title character. My favorite, favorite part, even though you already said it, I just don't think there's anything more over the top ridiculous humor than him having hail Hitler Tourette's. I, I see David's uh, critical outlook on that part even though i agree with you joey it is like the funniest most like you know obviously (laughs) funny obviously funny part but i you know the whole movie although there's a bunch of funny parts it it does address and and manifest these comedic elements in a very like dry and and forward serious way and i think the you know mind fear tourettes is is out there but i enjoyed it because you do have to remember that whatever this movie is whatever metaphor whatever story whatever message it's trying to it's trying to send to you trying to tell you at its core it is a comedy and Mm -hmm. because of that at any point that it can make me laugh it doesn't bother me the comedy elements that i appreciated from it one like running commentary from it is um and this is obviously something that happened it's like you know trying to make a point out of it but um when the uh, russian ambassador is talking about the doomsday device and he's like well we read america was working on one and we didn't want there to be a doomsday gap and like this whole idea of <laughs> Oh no, you're talking you're talking about the <laughs> the the mind shaft gap, right? What, what what do they call it? No, no, no. They called it the mind gap, but the mind shaft gap. But in before that, and I will get to the funny part of it that you're trying to steal, but before that, the Russian ambassador says we didn't want there to be a doomsday gap because we read about this in New York Times. And then as oh, Dr. Strangelove God. is explaining this to explaining how a doomsday device works and, you know, you, you know, all of the machinations in the background, Turgeson's like, damn, we got to get one of those doomsday devices. And like this whole idea <laughs> of the reason Russia and the U.S. escalated so much is, oh, what? They have a 40 megaton bomb? We need a 45 megaton bomb. Well, now we need a 50 and now we need a 60. And so like the commentary on that is very pointed and it's kind of important, especially at that time for 
That's the way escalation works. And that's the way we get to the precipice of killing each other. And then at the end, to have something as silly as we're going to go into a t into mine shafts for 100 years. Well, now, shit, we have to worry about the Russians and their mine shafts. What if they procreate faster than us? And then they'll be able to overpower us in 100 years. Sir, I'm really concerned about a, a mine shaft gap. Like that is taking this really important idea and then in the end saying, but this is a comedy and like we need to make you laugh. One of my favorite parts from that scene is when Dr. Strangelove starts like listing all the things you need when living in the mineshaft. And he just says everything so nonchalantly, you know, about having like greenhouses and um, minerals and water supplies. And he really quickly sneaks in a 10 to one ratio for female to male reproduction. And then he keeps listing a bunch of other stuff. And at that point, everyone in the in the war room is like, no, I don't I don't think this is a good idea. I, I'm I'm totally against this. And then one guy, I think it's the Russian guy, is like, wait, can we can we go back to that 10 to 1 female to male ratio thing? And then everyone's like, Yeah, what what's that about? What what yeah, I like now, that. It was tur is Turgis and like, but wouldn't that mean uh, the men would have to give up monogamy and uh strange loves like well, yes, obviously, sacrifices would have to be made. And it was also <laughs> funny, too, because he said, uh, Strangelove was like, it's vital that our top government and military men be included because they need to impart principles of, of leadership and tradition, which these are the people that got us in this exact situation, but they're vital to keep us going. Like, the commentary on that and the comedy on that, that part is, like, as you said, the last 30 minutes of this are amazing. Oh, and just to add, I know this is totally backwards in time but it is part of the last 30 minutes when he is about to shoot a hole mandrake's about to shoot a hole through a coca-cola machine to pay for his collect call and before that though he is ordered by gunpoint to make some kind of a call and he picks up a rotary phone that's <laughs> no wire come on it's funny oh no, my god no that is funny that is funny. I, I, I go back and forth, like, so obviously, and I think Alan, you and I were talking about this earlier, like, days ago, that for marketing purposes, this is called Dr. Strangelove, <clears throat> but he's in the movie so infrequently that I really go back, my favorite characters from this are, Turgidson's probably my favorite, but then Mandrake <laughs> is amazing. I think some of the best acting in this movie is from Peter Sellers as Mandrake. First, when he's discovering that Ripper has set into motion like a nuclear war. Um, and then when he is trying to convince Ripper to give him the code right before Ripper kills himself. Like his acting is actually just really like top notch in those scenes. I, I love the part where he tries to leave the office and it's like the first door is closed and he like composes himself and then he goes to the second door and that's locked. And then he like he goes and he composes himself and he salutes and he's like, your doors seem to be locked. <laughs> I just thought that was really funny. Can you please give me the code and the key to the door? Thank you. <laughs> well, one thing I want to talk about um, is what I believe to be, and again, this is all opinion, but what I believe to be the most recognizable um, shot of that film is at the time where, um, what was the, pilot's name that cowboy with the I southern mean, uh, accent king kong king kong 
yeah, when 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 uh, they have a little trouble trying to drop the nuclear bomb, uh, King Kong makes his way down to try to manually open the door shaft and ends up riding a nuclear missile backwards, free falling down to the floor while swinging arrogantly his cowboy hat as though he is at a rodeo. Um, and I wanted uh, both the guy's comments on, once again, I'm, I'm big on possible commentaries. Do we think the director was trying to say something about the way he or the rest of the world might view America in the middle of nuclear holocaust that we're swinging a cowboy hat going, woo All the while, everybody's fate is at stake. Guys, I don't think he was trying to say anything. I think he just wardrobe had a cowboy hat, honestly. Okay. Um, on a on a on a more serious tone than David. Um, you know what's funny is that I I saw metaphor in this movie like at every corner, but when it came down to the fa- <laughs> to the fact that you know he's just free falling, riding this missile down like a like a bull at a rodeo. I was just really enjoying like, well, first of all, I was thinking of like existential crisis. Like, God, if that was me, it's like, maybe he just accepted death at that moment. Like, yeah, he's definitely going to die and he knows this. But then on a, on the other hand, I'm like, um, well, that's kind of a really freaking cool way to die. Well, especially too, because he thinks Washington's been hit that we're in a full nuclear war. Um, my whole thought watching that was, yeah, it's funny, but two, like, it's one of those really iconic shots, but you can tell exactly how it was shot, right? He's in front of a screen with this backdrop, just sitting on the bull, the camera's panning out as it's supposed to be getting lower away, and then the angle on the screen of the background behind him is changing to show it, like, it was really cool to be able to figure out how something was done so easily, but also it just, it works really well still. Like the shot is really cool. And I think that shot, the, the one you were just talking about, David, is so iconic to this movie. You know, there, there's a few movies and a few shots where, you know, all you have to do is see one frame of a movie to know exactly what movie this is from. And I would, I would have to pick that frame um, to instantly recognize that this is Dr. Strangelove. The, the only other one I can think is the very last shot of the movie where Dr. Strangelove stands up out of the chair. Because one, when you, when you see Dr. Strangelove, it's, he's the titular character and he just looks strange. But I love him getting up out of the wheelchair and just looking down, I'm Fuhrer, I can walk! And then just cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then once again you get the classical music as just uh, you get to see nuclear weaponry going off here and there. Um, the the juxtaposition that they do throughout the movie of such a calm, soothing like the way people talk, especially um, Mandrake and Ripper in the beginning, and then the calm music in the beginning, and then in the end with what's actually going on. Like, I think that's one of the more iconic things about this movie. And, and, you know, much to what you were saying about the ending where you just see, you know, footage of explosions, it's like two and a half full minutes of just shit exploding, you know? 
which I guess is just to show you how many things we've exploded <laughs> right as a as a country and as a world yeah couple couple uh one more thing before we move on to wherever you guys are going to move on to which is the ending I I find that one more reason why I know that this is the classic is it checks a very specific box and that box is that it takes something that could essentially be argued as a war film and makes it absolutely unlike any war film. There is no, you know, Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now. There's no Saving Private Ryan. This is not about the emotional trauma and the family separation and the, you know, the, the grind of, of, of a war. At a very simple, simple way of looking at this, um, and, and I'll kind of just say my final thoughts about the film in wrap up with this is that a lot of war films that we watch, especially nowadays, is right there in the middle of the action. You know, we're on the ground, on the grounds with the troops in the in the warfare, in the trenches and everything like that. And I think to have this movie take place mainly in a war room, military based think tank sort of offices is is kind of like a real interesting look into the minds of the people that are sending the troops that most movies usually you know attach the audience to we're now attached to like the people who who send these people out to die and i think it's interesting to, and, and especially in a in a comedical in a comedic and a in a comedy way of looking at this being like yeah we basically have idiots um, that are in charge of, of people dying. And it might've taken me three watches to like really appreciate this movie, but I, uh, I, really, I really do like this movie. To me, I think the antiseptic nature of the way this is presented, because it's a war movie and you never really get to see war except for the obviously one iconic scene, but you don't see hand-to-hand -hand combat between uh you know militaries um so i think that's what sets, sets it apart but obviously as i've talked about the the satire is, is obvious but then the just the very reserved nature of the dialogue um the way that colonel ripper who's you know insane goes about setting these events into motion and the way mandrake responds to that so that's really what makes this completely different than every other war movie. I love this movie. And the reason why it stands out is because of all the war films that I have seen, not one of them uh, until I saw this one actually made me think in a, that I'm socially uh, a part of this. And it actually made me go, oh my gosh, there are mere mortals who put their pants on the same way as I do, who are, uh, subject to the same emotional spectrum that I am, um, have the same, you know, relationship problems that I have, and yet their fingers touch a button that can end the world and mine don't. And that's really the only difference. And this film, although it's a comedy, is ironically the only, its irony truly never ends because the irony is that it's the only war film that actually made me think in a practical, pragmatic kind of a way that nuclear war is a, a real possibility. No, I, I completely agree. And um, I, uh, I, I love uh, Stanley Kubrick and, and 
I, I will continue to think that he is one of the best directors of our, of our time. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of I Finally Watched. I'm Alon. I'm Joey. And this is David. And I finally watched Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. <laughs>